Hello, and welcome to another bonus podcast. My name is Crystal Taves. I'm the pastor of women at Northview Community Church. The podcast that you're about to hear was recorded on our Wednesday morning Bible studies. Uh, we did a series of remarkable lives, learning from Christians from, the, from history. We hope you will enjoy it. Why don't we get started? Richard Wurmbrandt is who I'm going to talk about. And then later I'm going to talk about his wife, Sabina. Does anyone, are these names familiar to anybody? No, one or two people. Wonderful. Okay, so it's, it's not uncommon that, that these people are uncommon to us. Um, Richard and Sabina Wurmbrand, they, they lived in Romania. Um, mostly the highlight of their story is during the communist regime. So in about the 50s and 60s uh, is where I'll highlight most of their story. And they were, they were prisoners, uh, political prisoners, because they were Christians. That was their crime. And so I'm going to walk through and tell you their story um, but something I think we need to know right off the bat about Richard and Sabina is that they're normal people. They're honestly a normal husband and a normal wife living a normal life. They're ordinary people, just like you, just like me. They found themselves in extraordinary circumstances. And so some of these things, are gonna, we're going to look at their life and say, wow, they are remarkable. But if you were to talk to them, they would say, no, we're just normal and we just had this circumstance and so we just had to kind of live our life faithful to Christ in the midst of that. So I want to, before we even start, take them off this pedestal as heroes and just put them on the playing field. These are our brothers and sisters in Christ. They're normal people, but we have a lot to learn from them. The other thing that I want to say is I spent about maybe a week and a half reading things about their life, and I was immersed in their life so much I was dreaming about them. Um, They are incredible. Their story is hard. It's really hard. I shed a few tears as I was reading some of these stories. So I don't intend to make you cry. I'm not here to manipulate your emotions. But as we, as we learn about their life and as we learn um, maybe imagining some of these things happening to us or to our loved ones, it's, it's normal to feel, oof, this feels a little personal. And so that's okay. Uh, these are relationships, husbands and wives and children. Um, there's, we're going to talk about a lot of the evil that happened. Uh, we're going to talk about the love of Christ. Like these things, if we're human, which we are, they should move us to an emotional response. But my goal isn't to manipulate us there at all. I'm going to be careful with some of the stories I share. I'm not going to be gory and graphic with them. But I am going to paint that picture because like Sarah said last week, the more we know about someone's story, then the more we talk about, oh yeah, they love their neighbor. Okay, now we can know, is that like just a superficial comment or like what depth did that love come from? So I want us to get to know them in that sense. So this is a story from history. Both Sabina and uh, Richard have passed away. Uh, Richard passed away in 2001, Sabina passed away in 2000. So they're somewhat of our contemporaries, but they have, they have gone to be with the Lord. They're actually more alive today than we are, which is pretty cool to think about. But it's not just a story from history. This is somewhat of a current story, too. There's more persecuted Christians in the world today. And so as Sarah and I were planning this class, we wanted to talk about um, someone who was persecuted, maybe one of the martyrs. And as I was looking into it, I was looking at Voice of the Martyrs and thinking that's an organization that brings awareness to uh, persecuted Christians around the world. And I was looking at which story should we do. I found out about Richard, and he's actually the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. So it's because of his life and his testimony uh, that we are able to know so much about, about uh, the persecuted church today. So this is, this is an active event, but I'm going to focus on one person's story. Richard, right at the end of his book, 
He says, uh, this book contains episodes from one man's life and the story of those who were with him in prison. But behind them all, behind all these stories that we read about in his book or that I'm going to share with you today, behind them all stands an unseen being, Christ. It is Christ who kept us in the faith and gave us strength to conquer. So I want us to remember as we're thinking, Richard, wow. Yeah, Richard did wow things. But Christ was the one who kept him, and Christ was the one who gave him courage. So let's see Christ behind the stories that we hear about Richard. Romania. Okay, so Richard. Actually, can I pray before we start? Let's do this. Lord, thank you so much for your faithfulness. We are here to study the lives of of faithful Christians, remarkable lives of people who have been faithful to you to the end. And so, Lord, as we uh, look today to the Wormbrand's life, we thank you for their life, for their testimony. And Lord, I pray that by looking at their life and by being encouraged by it and inspired by it, Lord, that it would propel us to be faithful in our lives, faithful to you, faithful to the end. So Lord, would you do this um, in us? Would you do this for us? Because we, we know that it is Christ who keeps us and it is Christ uh, who helps us be faithful. So Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so Romania, Richard was born um, in 1909. Oh, and I have timelines. I don't know if you all got them. People on this end of the rows, there's a stack of timelines. If you want to pass that stack down just so everyone can get one, I'm not going to go date by date down, but I thought as I tell stories, sometimes it's like, oh, well, when did that happen in his life? This can just be a reference guide for you. Richard's on one side, Sabina's on the other side. So, The really brief overview is um, kind of in in his 30s, uh, Richard, his late 20s, Richard became a Christian. In his 30s, he had a family, and then he got sent to uh, prison for 14 years. And then when he got released, he came to the West, the Western Europe and America, and shared his story. So that's the overview of his life. And Sabina's life follows a similar storyline. She was only in prison for three years, though. And then for 11 years, she lived without knowing if her husband was dead or alive and under difficulties. So that's kind of the terrain of their life. So let's get into some of the details here about Richard. So he was born in 1909 to a Jewish family. Uh, He was raised Orthodox Jew for a little while, but when he was nine years old, he was orphaned. He was the youngest of four kids, and living in Romania... And being an orphan, he ended up living in quite severe poverty as a child. Um, Very little clothes, very little food, but they did have um, this house that had a bookshelf in it, and he loved to read. And so he, as a child, remembers reading every book in that bookshelf. He loved reading Voltaire. He loved reading about uh, the communist thinkers. And he just absorbed all of this skepticism and and atheistic writings. And he became quite skeptical about the view of the world. And he uh, became a very committed atheist um, when he was just a young child, probably in his, like, I don't know, preteen years. He loved churches, though. He would always walk past churches and think, if only there was a God, it would be a nice thing. But there isn't a God. And so all of this is silly. And he couldn't understand why a God who is so apparently powerful and so apparently loving could allow so much suffering and so much evil in the world. So he had suffered a lot, and he just couldn't reconcile how a God could exist if this was his life. So he embraced atheism wholeheartedly. And when he was 19 years old, he moved... um, Well, when he was orphaned, he ended up moving to Turkey and lived in Turkey for a long time. 
Then when he was 19, he moved back to Romania. And he was at that point a very strong atheist. He went into business and he became um, quite a rich stockbroker. He got married when he was 27 years old. And he told his wife uh, when he proposed, you're going to have a very hard life with me. I guess he, yeah, I'll tell you a little bit more from Sabina's perspective about that. So a year after he got married, a year or two years after he got married, he ended up contracting TB, tuberculosis, um, which at that time, TB was, it was a death sentence. He wasn't going to survive this. So he ended up going up to the mountains in Romania for some convalescence. Um, Hopefully rest would stave off his disease a little bit. Anyways, he ended up going there and met this this man who worked there, who, by the way, had prayed for years to meet a Jew. Before he died, he wanted to convert a Jew to Christ because Christ was a Jew. And so this man had prayed for years and years and years to convert a Jew. And so this Jewish man, Richard, comes to the mountain and he says, I've prayed for you my whole life. So this started many conversations and debates and dialogues and Richard became a Christian. And this was his prayer shortly after he became a Christian. He said, God, I was an atheist. Now let me go to Russia, because that's where a lot of the communist atheistic literature that he had read came from. Now let me go to Russia to work as a missionary among atheists. And I shall not complain if afterwards I have to spend all the rest of my life in prison. But God did not send me on the long journey to Russia. Instead, the Russians had come to me. So what's happening at this time in the world... I'm going to show you a picture of Richard so you know him and his wife, Sabina, so you kind of have an idea who we're talking about. So 1939 to 1945 is World War II. So Richard and Sabina um, were Christians during during World War II, and they had worked a lot uh, to do evangelistic work among the German troops that were in Romania. Uh, The Nazis were occupying Romania, and so they did a lot of work among the German soldiers to witness to them, to bring them to Christ. They would preach in bomb shelters. Uh, They would rescue Jewish children who were out in the ghettos. Uh, They were arrested many times. They were beaten. They almost were executed. Um, They lived a very risky life during World War II, trying to uh, be the hands and feet of Jesus to those who were suffering and also trying to share, proclaim the good news of Christ to those who were persecuting but also who were suffering. So they did this, but in 1944, the German occupation started to collapse in Romania, and the Russian liberators came in. So there's this little bit of this conflict that the Romanians are feeling, because living under the Nazi oppression was harsh. It was very horrible. So they were relieved that the Germans were fleeing, but they knew that the Russians were coming to liberate them, but they were not sure what kind of liberation this would be because they knew that the Russians were also harsh. They knew that the Russian regime was also totalitarian and just incredibly difficult. But this was an answer in some ways to Richard's prayer. The Russians came to him, so just troops and troops and troops of Russian soldiers are now in Romania, and he doesn't have to leave. He can just go out his door and he can start witnessing to the, to the Russians. So in 1945, so the end of World War II, uh, the Russian army uh, occupation is in Romania, and this is when Richard and Sabina start doing a lot of their underground 
work. They didn't know it was underground work. Someone came years later and asked Richard um, if he could show him where the underground church was. And Richard was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then they found out this was Richard. He's like, well, it's you. You're the underground church. And he had never heard that term before. He just knew that the work they had to do, they couldn't do it super publicly. So part of the the work that they did, um, the churches, under, under the communist regime, you could have a church, you could be a pastor. That was the public view. The private view was that the pastor actually had to be an informant. And you had to tell the government every person who came into your church, every prayer that they prayed, every confession they confessed, every attendance that they missed, where were they when they weren't at church, who did they come to church with, did they bring anyone new to church, that you had to inform on your congregants. So you couldn't add people to your church you couldn't grow. So it was very regulated and very oppressed um, because they wanted to gain control of the churches. So anyways, um, if you opposed this as a pastor, your church was seized and your diocese where you worked for it was abolished. You lost your license. And so what Richard ended up doing was just saying, okay, well, we can't do this publicly then, so we'll do it secretly. So he was very bold in his evangelism to the Russians. He would um, make friends in the street and just start talking to them about philosophy and start talking to them about politics and start talking to them and look for holes in their logic. And then he would just start hammering on those holes and he would meet up again with them. And he had so many friends he met this way and brought a lot of people to Christ between 45 and 47, so just after World War II, he and his wife handed out, I read somewhere, a million Gospels. So they were not rich people. They created these, wrote them. They had some access to some printing presses and portions of the Gospels they would hand out to the Russians. They had to hide them, put Marxist propaganda on the front of it, and then have a few pages um, praising, praising the government and then at the back of it, because the, under inspection they wouldn't look that far, that's where the gospel was. So they would hand out a million copies of the gospels to the Russian troops in the streets. This is very dangerous work. If he got caught, off to jail. But he did it. And then, um, yeah, to the Romanian communists, he also um, had another strategy and was very focused. He didn't matter, it didn't matter who you were. He wanted to know, how can I reach you and you, and you, in different ways, reach you for Christ. So Richard wrote um, that he had prepared himself for prison and torture. Imagine that. Do we think of that? Preparing ourselves for prison and torture? We don't live in a, in a conflict zone, um, like with war and with prisons just down the road from us. But he had intentionally prepared himself for prison and torture as a soldier in peacetime prepares for the hardships of war. I had studied the lives of Christians. That's what we're doing. Studying the lives of Christians who had faced similar pains and temptations to surrender. And I thought how I might adapt their experiences. Many who had not so prepared themselves were crushed by suffering or diluted into saying what they should not. So my hope in studying his life and Sabina's wife today is that we would be prepared for suffering by looking at their suffering and how they endured it and how they were faithful in the midst of it, that that would encourage us in our lives to stay faithful, to endure and persevere in the midst of whatever hardships and suffering come our way. Probably we're not going to end up in a communist prison, but we will have some sorts of persecution, some sorts of suffering in our lives as Christians. 
So I think studying his life, this is my hope that we would, like Richard, look at the lives of faithful Christians so that we can walk in their footsteps. So 1945, there's this massive Congress meeting in Romania. Um, Over 4,000 different ministers, so multiple religions, um, Jewish, Christian, Orthodox, Muslim, many religions had gathered. 4,000 people were in this Congress hall, and uh, Stalin had given many good speeches about how we're going to work together, and we're going to bring peace to this nation, and this is wonderful, and majority of the the people there were in loud, bold support, praising Stalin, praising the glory of of this regime that had come to save us in Romania, very willing to cooperate with the communists. And so Richard is sitting there and he's getting more and more disturbed by what's happening and he ends up standing up and saying, um, well, this is what he wrote. He said, I asked to speak. And they were pleased to invite me to the rostrum. So they were so pleased to invite him because after Richard became a Christian, he had gone to school, he'd become a pastor, and he'd become very renowned in Romania for his preaching, and he'd become quite a famous author in Romania. So he's a public figure. So if they can get Richard Wurmbrand to support them, this is being broadcast to the whole nation. It's actually going internationally as well. So this is really good for the communists. So Richard comes, he wants to speak. The organizers looked forward to publishing a congratulatory speech next day from Pastor Wurmbrand. I began with a brief word on communism. I said it was our duty as priests to glorify God and Christ, not transitory earthly powers, and to support God's everlasting kingdom of love against the vanities of the day. As I went on, the priests who had sat for hours listening to flattering lies about the party seemed to awaken as from a dream. Someone began to clap. The tension snapped and the applause, the applause suddenly broke, wave after wave, uh, with delegates standing up to cheer. The minister of cults, which is just the minister of like religious affairs, a former Orthodox priest, he shouted from the platform that my right to speak was withdrawn. And I replied that I had a right from God. And I continued. And in the end, the microphone was disconnected. But by then, the hall was in such an uproar that no one could hear anything. So now his license to be a pastor is in jeopardy, and he has an even bigger target on his back for arrest, and he knew that going to up to the microphone to speak publicly in front of all these people. But he said, um, my speech was broadcast to the whole nation. Like, this was a win in his books. He might lose his job, he might get thrown in prison, but everyone heard that Richard Wurmbrand did not support what was happening, and it was contrary to the gospel of Christ. So, Ten years after he became a Christian, we're in 1948, Richard was walking to church, and he was arrested. He was just picked up into a car, and off he went. So while he's in prison, he, three things, three major categories happened in his, in his prison term. He was interrogated, he was in solitary confinement, and then he was in mass cells. So I want to walk through some of the things that happened to him once he was in prison, not to glory in his sufferings, like I said, but so that we can kind of gain, gain a perspective of, of the value of the, the advice and the experience that he has for us. So during interrogation, uh, this happened for months and months. He did not know how long that this happened for. Um, he ended up having, um, he knew that torture was coming. He just, this was part of interrogation. You don't answer the questions they want because you don't know the answers they want because their questions are kind of nonsense. What are your crimes? I preached the gospel of Christ. No, tell me what your crimes are. Uh, 
So it's very intense. He knew torture was coming. And there, he's in prison. Um, So he resolved to kill himself. He ended up getting some sleeping pills, and he hid about 30 of them in his mattress. And he had planned before the torture starts, I will take all these pills because, not because he didn't want to endure torture, he didn't want to um, give the names of his fellow Christian workers. He didn't think he would be able to bear, and he didn't want to betray his Christians, his fellow Christians. So randomly, one day, they uh, just walked in, took his mattress, and walked out. The guards did. So now his uh, suicide plan was for naught. He did not have his pills. And he said in that moment, he knew that God did not want him to kill himself, and that God would give me the strength to bear the suffering ahead. So I just think this is amazing, that here is a man who didn't want to endure the suffering— because he didn't think he could withstand it. But now he has no option. He has to withstand it. And he knew that God would be the one who would give him strength. So this is before the tortures start. Um, The tortures were quite horrible. And here's, he says that um, a doctor was present at each torture session to take the pulse and check that the victim was not about to escape into the next world while the secret police still had need of him. It was an image of hell in which torment is eternal and you cannot die. This is what he lived for months and months and months, eternal torment. So at one point, um, the torturer saw him reduced to a wreck. I'm going to read what he said. Weeping from nervous fatigue, the torturer said something like pity. Why don't you give in? It's all so futile. You're only flesh, and you'll break in the end. And Richard writes, But I had proof of the contrary. Had I just been flesh, I could not have resisted. But the body is only a temporary residence for the soul. The communists, relying on the instinct of self-preservation, thought a man would do anything to avoid extinction. But they were mistaken. Christians who believed what they said in church knew that to die was not the end of life, but its fulfillment. It was not extinction, but it was the promise of eternity. So he was not just a mere man who was being tortured. He was a child of God, and he was willing and able through that knowledge because he believed what he said in church. It wasn't just words. It was deeply changed him how he thought about the world. So he uh, shocked the communists, and he survived a lot of these tortures. So after this, he was taken to solitary confinement, and he said, did I believe in God? Now the test had come. Not the tortures earlier, but now the test had come. Solitary confinement. There was no salary to earn as a pastor. There were no golden opportunities to consider. God only offered me suffering. Would I continue to love him? So he was in solitary confinement for three years. He was underground for 30 30 feet underground. No sun, no flowers, no color, no rain. No sound. The guards wore cloth, cloth um, fabric on their shoes, so you could never hear when they were walking or coming. Isolated from everything that he has ever known in his life. Um, yeah, pretty crazy. He survived this um, in in very strategic ways. He he knew his mind needed to be clear, and so he would write sermons in his mind every night. He would preach to, he said, only the angels were around, so I would preach to the angels. So he composed 
I don't know how many hundreds of sermons, but he remembers 350 of them. So he wrote some of them down in his book, With God in Solitary Confinement. It is, he says at the beginning, um, don't, don't read this as a theology book. He says, many of you might disagree. He says, but when you're in solitary confinement and there's no system for the day and there's no structure to life, some of your systematic theologies get forgotten and left out the window. And I say, I'll give you a pass on some of those things. But this is this man's heart. And this is how he survived solitary confinement. And these are sermons slash his prayers and his meditations to God. So um, one, of, one of the things he wrote in that book, um, his his mind would break, understandably, the mental agony of being alone. And he, he had a lot of um, behaviors that you would think of someone being mentally unstable. Um, so when he w- his mind would break, he would shout uncontrollably, and they would come and they would gag him and put him in a straitjacket. So the second time he was gagged, this is what he wrote. He said, I am in a straitjacket, and I am gagged for a second time. With whom else can I speak? I speak to except for you. So now he's going to describe the events that led up to him being gagged. He said, I remembered St. Francis of Assisi, and I wondered how he would have felt in my place. Saying the cross is the only tree on which the flower of perfect joy will grow. I have the cross, so I decided to be joyful, and I danced. In solitary confinement, I danced. I spun round until my mind became completely blank. My whole body was in a sweat when I fell onto my bed with tears running down my cheeks while the guards who had been looking through the peephole in the door laughed at me. Why, my soul, are you so stupidly concerned with the latest event, the fact that I have been put into a straitjacket and gagged? Bless my soul, the communists, who by gagging me free me from the vanity of words and gave me an insight into reality. There is a meaning in this gagging too. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's profound, isn't it? Like, how does it get worse? And then it does. He still praises God. After his first experience of real torture, uh, he said, um, which is incredible to see, I'm going I'm to read this, his reflection on it, that he still has such a heart for forgiveness and such a passion to, to evangelize, to save the souls of those who do not know Christ. He said, for a few days I could not preach to you as usual. Remember his preaching was all in his mind. The physical pain was too great. He was in so much pain he couldn't form logical sentences for his own mind to think through. Still, there was some joy in my pain. Up to now they have beaten and whipped me. Now for the first time they have tortured me so that visible marks will remain on my body until death or perhaps even after. By Christ's wounds, I am saved, and perhaps my scars will be helpful also. My prayers for my torturers will perhaps be more effective if I can show the Father the wounds I received from them. If I can continue to love them, if I can forgive, why should God exclude them from his love and not forgive them? Isn't that amazing? I have not been hurt like this. I can't imagine loving someone who would hurt me like this. And yet his heart is, this is wonderful that I have proof. Because now as I continue to love them, there might still be a chance that they can be reconciled to God. That was his heart. Not for bitterness, not for revenge. This is amazing. So the summary of how bad it got, he said, we are in hell. 
Sometimes during nights of horror, I look at the cup of water which is in my cell. Only this cup of water assures me that this is not eternal hell, because there the damned have no water. Crazy, really crazy. So he was, I have to keep an eye on the time. When are we going to break? Um, okay, I have a little bit more time. So he um, got hauled out of solitary confinement for interrogation, and he had to write a declaration, which is basically confessing to all the crimes. So after two years of solitary confinement, he is given a pen, he's given 30 minutes, and they say, write your declaration. He sat there for the longest time and couldn't figure out how to pick up a pen. He had forgotten what it was. And you have to write your declaration, starting with declaration, and he couldn't remember how to write a capital D. But he did eventually, and I would love to see this piece of paper, how like dysfunctional the letters were and how scrambled it was. But he ended up writing, um, and, and his, his uh, prison guard, the torturer who, who made him do this, um, picked up his declaration, and he began to read. And after a while, he, he had this, um, this whip in his hand. After a while, he put this down. And when he came to the end of my declaration, he looked at me with troubled eyes. He said, Mr. Wurmbrand, he had never called me Mr. before. Why do you say you love me? This is one of your Christian commandments that no one can keep. I couldn't love someone who shut me up for years alone, who starved me and beat me. And I said, it's not a matter of keeping a commandment. When I became a Christian, it was as I had been reborn with a new character, which was full of love. Just as only water can flow from a spring, so only love can come from a loving heart. For two hours, we talked about Christianity and its relation to the Marxist doctrines on which he was brought up. And Richard was called into interrogation uh, for, I don't know how long, a couple weeks. And Greku, the torturer, would interrogate him, and they would have one to two hour discussions about Marxist philosophies and doctrines and Christian philosophies and doctrines. And then Greco would leave and investigate the claims of Marx, which Richard would tell him, and investigate the claims of Christ, which Richard would tell him. And he would call him back the next day for either more dialogue or torture. Richard never knew. And after weeks of this investigation and, and dialogue, he says the words went to his heart. He began to think and to love Jesus. Two weeks later, he confessed. He confessed to me in my patched prison rags, and we became brethren. And then he disappeared, and no one knew where Greco went. And Richard said, to hide a true conversion is not easy. So it's assumed he was found out, and he was so committed to Christ that he ended up in prison as well. So three years in solitary confinement with no sun, you can imagine even no food, the, the vitamin depletion, and this man was so sick. His fingernails had turned to mush. Like he was, he was just a sick, sick, diseased person. And so um, they transferred him to a hospital because we are not Nazis who murder. We want you to live and suffer. So they took him to a hospital so he could continue to live and suffer. How compassionate. So they took him to this hospital. He somewhat recovered. And then uh, he was tried and sentenced to 20 years of hard labor. 
And so he got sent to this labor camp, but he was in such poor condition that they just sent him straight to room four, which was the death room. It's where you go to die because you will not survive. And he was dying for 30 months in room four. He never died. But many people came there, entered um, basically on death row, not because they would be um, executed there, but they would just die of their diseases. Um, Many came convinced unbelievers. But Richard said, no one died an atheist. They came into room four as atheists, these fellow prisoners, and no one died an atheist. He said, a true conviction must survive enormous pressures. Atheism does not. It doesn't survive those kinds of enormous pressures. And so he was a missionary, basically on death row himself, to all of these other prisoners who were dying, which is incredible. I don't know how many hundreds of men he led to the Lord as he was in room four. So he, um, he was released eight years um, after his arrest, um, after his 20-year sentence. So it was cut short by 12 years. He was just given general amnesty and just kind of his crimes were erased and he was set free. Um, so they sent him outside of the prison doors. They shut the doors. And he's now a free man in the huge, big, wide world. And he says, I called out so that the guards could hear behind the wall. So the first thing he says, he steps outside of the prison. The first thing he says loudly so the guards can hear, God, help me not to rejoice more because I'm free than because you were with me in prison. This is this man's heart for God. Lord, it doesn't matter where I am. My joy is that you are with me. After eight years of inhumane treatment, Lord, you were with me. I'm more glad for that than my freedom. I, he was thankful for his freedom. But that wasn't the goal of his life, which is amazing that this statement came after he was released. So his summary, a summary of his prison experience, um, I think there's a couple things as I read through his stories, especially the stories of his conversations with his prison guards, with his torturers, and with his fellow cellmates who were atheists. There was this love for God that was unshakable. And there was a love for others that manifests its way in forgiveness towards the guards. And there was a love for, yeah, it manifests its way in forgiveness. It manifests its way in caring for the needs of others and being willing to, to risk talking to people. He would, they learned a prison Morse code system and he would tap the gospel message through the walls. It was a very highly illegal crime. And he would do it and he was tortured for it. But it was love that compelled him to do all of these things. And joy. He had such joy in prison, which sounds like a, paradox. How can you be, have such true joy when you're in such true misery? He wrote this. I found that joy can be acquired like a habit, the same way a folded sheet of paper falls naturally into the same fold. Be joyful is a command of God. John Wesley used to say that he was never sad even one quarter of an hour. I cannot say the same thing of myself. I appreciate his honesty there. (laughs) He says, but I learned to rejoice in the worst conditions. I rarely allowed a night to pass without dancing. Friends to whom I spoke later of dancing in prison asked, what for? What use was it? It was not something useful. 
It was a manifestation of joy. I did not mind if my captors thought I was mad, for I had discovered a beauty in Christ which I had not known before. And I think that underneath his love, underneath his joy, underneath his forgiveness was the rock which was Christ. He said, there were times that I was near to apostasy. Happily, just on those worst days, I was not tortured. Probably then I would have cracked. The torture happened only after I had overcome despair. His worst days were not the days he was tortured. Did you catch that? The way he wrote that? His worst days were the days when he thought that he would deny Christ. And it was only on his better days when he was convinced of Christ that he could endure the torture. Christ was the bedrock, it was the motivation, and it was the drive for all the love and the forgiveness and the joy that he was able to display in his life. He wasn't just a joyful person. He was a Christ-filled person who was then able to have joy and then able to have love. He said, okay, so now he's released. He like manages to find his way home. And he said, now that I was free, I longed in the depths of my heart for some quietness and rest. But communism was working everywhere to complete the destruction of the church. The peace that I desired would have been an escape from reality and dangerous to my soul. So he went straight back to his normal work, preaching, evangelizing. Uh, His license to preach was revoked, so he's now doing more illegal crimes. He still preached. He knew he would be rearrested, and he prayed, God, if you know men in prison who I can help, souls that I can save, Send me back, and I will bear it willingly. And then he writes, Sabina sometimes hesitated and then said amen. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) No kidding. This is a hard prayer. How do you? Yes, Lord, I'm willing to endure more suffering for your name. But his heart was to bring people to the Lord, and he knew this life is temporary. And so, Lord, if there is souls in prison that I can save, and you can use me there, Rather than use me here, I will go willingly and bear it with joy. So, um, how many years later? Um, three years later, he's rearrested. So he works for three years under the threat of arrest um, in very difficult circumstances. And his first day back in prison, the Lord answered his prayer. He led his cellmate to the Lord. And then... Um, he, more, more interrogation, more solitary confinement. He had another trial. He's sentenced now to 25 years of hard labor. And he uh, was moved to one of the worst prisons. And he was moved around from cell to cell to cell. They didn't want him to stay in one cell too long because he would convert too many people. Uh, so they moved him from cell to cell to cell. Um, but he preached in every single cell. Everywhere, every man he met, he wanted them to know about the love and the forgiveness and the freedom of Christ. So in 1962 to 1964, he wrote, the worst was yet to come. So everything that I have told you that sounds worst and awful is not, which in my mind when I'm reading it, how can this get worse? So this is what he describes. Um, the, the worst part was the brainwashing that they, that they would do in the camps. And they... Um, yeah, they divided them into groups and they would made them sit through lectures and then they would make them sit and listen to loudspeakers. Um, they, were, they called them struggle meetings. 
So they would do this, and then they would put them in solitary confinement. Then they would bring them out and give them a taste of a good life, luxury. They would wash them. They would have a lovely shower and put on nice new clothes and have this wonderful feast and maybe be allowed to have a lady visitor for tea and all these, these wonderful, normal luxuries of life. And then back to brainwashing, back to uh, struggle meetings, back to torture, back to solitary confinement, hot boxes, cold boxes, just terrible life. And then a taste of luxury. If you will just recant, this could all be yours. Some of the brainwashing, communism is good, communism is good, communism is good, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, Christianity is stupid, why not give up, why not give up, why not give up? Can you imagine that for 17 hours? You have to sit straight, you can't slouch a little, you can't close your eyes, you'll be tortured, you must sit straight and listen for hours on end. Nobody believes in Christ now, Nobody believes in Christ now. Nobody believes in Christ now. No one goes to church. No one goes to church. Give it up. Give it up. Give it up. The mental agony. He said, for a long time, I remained in the special block. How long? I'm not sure. Time has telescoped all days of certain periods in my prison life into one enormous day. The brainwashing increased in its intensity, and eventually Richard did not know what to believe anymore. He did not know what was true and false, what was right, what was wrong. One day they tricked him into thinking that uh, his family was coming. They got him to write a letter of invitation. They mailed it to the family. They said, this is the day, the appointment. They got him washed. They got him ready. They had him sit and wait and wait and wait and wait, and his family never came. And then they sent him back into lectures. Christianity is dead. Christianity is dead. Nobody loves you. Nobody loves you. Nobody loves you. They don't want you anymore. They don't want you anymore. They don't want you anymore. Can you imagine? And he broke down and he wept and he wept and he wept. And then he wrote this. You guys, listen to this. This is so beautiful. This, mind's, this man's mind was broken. His body was broken, and he wrote this. He said, in time, I came to believe what they had told us for all these months. Christianity was dead. The Bible foretells a time of great apostasy, and I believed that it had arrived. Then I thought of Mary Magdalene. What a random thought. <laughs> in the midst of Mary Magdalene. And perhaps this thought helped save me through the soul-killing poison of the last and the worst stage of the brainwashing. I remembered how she was faithful to Christ even when he cried on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when he was a corpse in the tomb, she wept nearby and waited until he arose. So when I believed at last that Christianity was dead, I said, even so, I will believe in it. And I will weep at its tomb until it arises again as it surely will. It's amazing. It's remarkable. It was absolutely remarkable. This man persevered. He was sorely tempted to give in and take the good life. But somehow Christ kept him. And somehow Richard was faithful in the midst of all of this. So he was released um, in 1964 after six years of this kind of living. 19 years early from his uh, parents' sentence. 
Um, he was given general amnesty. And then eventually what happened was, um, well, he was given a church. He was given a church. It had 35 people in attendance. And they warned him, if it grows to 36, you will be arrested. <laughs> well, Richard now, is, he is a popular man. He has been released from prison. He has been faithful to Christ. Who's not going to go to Richard's church? So he, um, he ended up just resuming underground secret work again immediately. Okay, why? Why would he do this? Isn't this a man who knows the risks of this kind of work? It's not because he loved prison. It's not because he loved pain. All of these things are good things to avoid. It's because he loved Jesus and because he loved communists. He wanted communists to know the love of Jesus. It's totally, totally remarkable. So there was a very high chance that Richard's going to be rearrested. And he's very much an international figure at this time. And the Norwegian church um, heard about all of this. And so they, they started collecting money and they ransomed him. They, they paid the Romanian government a ransom so Richard could leave the country. Uh, the going rate for a political prisoner in Romania was $2,000. In 1964, Norway paid $10,000 to have Richard released, five times the growing rate, going rate of a political prisoner. So Richard um, was released on, a, it was an unconditional release, except that he was sat down before he left the country and was threatened about what to say and what not to say in the West about his experience under the communist regime. Keep it to the gospel, they said. Don't talk about us. We can hire a gangster for $1,000 and we can silence you for good. Or we can contrive a scandal about you, about your sex life, about your greed, about your abuse of money. So keep it to the gospel and don't mention us. Well, Richard, he devoted the rest of his life uh, to this effort of, uh, despite the warnings, despite the death threats, of preaching Christ, but also speaking against, against what the communists were doing to kill religion, to kill Christ, and so he ended up um, in 66, 67, I couldn't quite nail down the date. So this is, this is four, about four years after his release, his ransom, and now he's living um, in the West. He did traveling in Western Europe and then I think settled in America. And he testified in Washington, D.C. at the U.S. Senate's um, International Security Subcommittee. And he testified about what he had experienced in prison. And this is one of the very first times the Western world knew anything about the persecuted church behind the Iron Curtain. So Richard's testimony opened the floodgates for Christian relief and for international pressures to be put on these political prisoners who are, who are just in, in prison for their faith. And this, like I said earlier, continues today through the foundation, the Voice of the Martyrs that he founded. He said, I denounce communism, but I love communists. And we, can, we get a sense of that. Throughout, throughout his life and his commitment. I have a small little video um, about his forgiveness. Um, it's about two minutes, so I'm going to show you this, and then we can break um, into some discussion questions. But um, yeah, this is one of these remarkable lessons. When he got let out of prison the first time and stumbled his way home and walked in the door, his son was on the staircase and said, Father, you have suffered a lot. I would love to learn the lessons through your suffering. So I think this is one of the lessons that we can learn through Richard's suffering.
Someone asked while, while we were at break, they said, um, what happened to his wife during this time? So if this is one of your burning questions, this is what we're going to spend the next 25, 30 minutes going over is what was Sabina's life like during this time when, when Richard, it's a little loud, <laughs> when Richard was, um, was in prison. So a couple comments I want to make. Um, as I was going around and listening to some of the discussions, I said right at the beginning, probably none of us are going to end up in a communist prison for our faith. But that doesn't mean, so in some sense, we have, we have them like way up on pedestals like heroes, like that is true Christian living, true Christian sacrifice, true Christian perseverance. And that's not necessarily true. They, yes, are examples of true Christian perseverance, but that doesn't mean that none of us who aren't in communist camps can't truly, as Christians, persevere in our life. The Lord hasn't given us that situation, but he has given you a situation and you a situation and you a situation. And my hope in talking about their lives is not to say that all suffering is the same, but to say that all Christians are equally called to faithfully persevere and faithfully follow the Lord. And so I hope by looking at them, we're not walking out feeling, oh, I'm just like a wimpy Christian, but look at them and say, Lord, would you help me to walk in their footsteps and be faithful in the situations and scenarios you've put me in to expect that as a Christian, our lives will have suffering of a variety of kinds. And when that happens, we want to be faithful in that. So there is a quote, um, this is not from the Wormbrands. It's for, I don't know who wrote it, but she writes novels. And the quote says, at crucial moments of choice, most of the business of choosing is already over. And I think that's really interesting as we think about the Wormbrands. They didn't get married in their third, become Christians and get married and live their life and think, I am going to be a near martyr and a voice for the persecuted church because of the insane suffering I endured. No, they just wanted to, they chose to follow Christ. So they were faithful to that and they were faithful in their Christian beliefs. And as scenarios and opportunities, remember Sarah talking about Elizabeth Elliot next week, do the next thing. They just did the next faithful thing. The next opportunity that they had, the next conversation where they could witness, the next opportunity that they wouldn't deny Christ. They just kept doing the next thing. So in these big moments of decision, will you surrender to the government or deny Christ or will you follow Christ? Well, the little decisions along the way actually ended up making those big decisions. So I just want to encourage us that we don't have to be like, what is our grand story going to be? Let's just be faithful people. Let's just be faithful. God is faithful and Christ is faithful. And so let's be faithful to him. I'm going to teach on Sabina for about 25 minutes. And then we're going to spend about 15 minutes on discussion and 15 minutes. I would love to not just have this fill our heads and warm our hearts. I would love for this to move us to prayer for the persecuted church. So for the last 15 minutes, 11.15 to 11.30, we're going to pray together for the persecuted church. So just to kind of give you a lay of the land as we go. So Sabina, uh, born in 1913, died in 2000, so lived a very similar lifespan uh, to her husband Richard. Uh, when she was a young adult, she didn't know God. She wasn't a Christian. And she writes that she didn't care for other people. Uh, she didn't want children. She wanted a life of pleasure. So I got this, this perspective of her, this impression of her, that she was very selfish. 
very self-centered, but not that she was rude. I don't think you wouldn't have enjoyed being her friend. I just think in her mind, she just, she wanted self-fulfillment and pleasure out of life. And so the things in her life that would bring her that, that's what she pursued. So she met Richard, and like I said, uh, he was a rich stockbroker, and so this kind of fit her lifestyle pretty well because she wanted pleasure and luxury. Um, She wanted good times. And so when Richard was diagnosed um, with TB, she said it felt as if Richard had been sentenced to death, which we talked about, and she said it seemed to be the worst tragedy in my life. So this is her, um, how old would she be? She'd be in her mid-20s, I think, at this point. This is the worst tragedy that has happened to her life. And then Richard became a Christian, and she was utterly dismayed. This was worse than his death sentence with TB, which he didn't die from. But um, him becoming a Christian was the worst thing. She was utterly dismayed by it. Uh, She was an Orthodox Jew, grew up as an Orthodox Jew. She abandoned her faith. And she hated Christians because Christians hated her. So there was a long history of abuse between Christians and Jews, not just politically and not just throughout history, but in her own life, in her school, the Christian girls were were horribly mean and, and would taunt her and pull her pigtails. And just the Christians had all kinds of mean songs and evil games and she just knew that Christians hated Jews. And so she said to Richard, I would rather die than have you be baptized. Which sounds a little melodramatic, but she actually, um, she actually was, was committed to, to kill herself um, with the day he left to go be baptized. And that night she was alone at home and she had planned to kill herself. And she had this... Um, not necessarily an experience, but, but had a lot of thinking. And, and honestly, the Holy Spirit was convicting her. And she couldn't go through with her suicide plan and ended up pursuing um, some more conversations. And her intellectual um, objections to Christianity were broken down. But she was resistant of heart. She didn't want it to be true. She didn't want to be a Christian because she had to overcome so many emotional difficulties to think that the Christ and the Christian she had always hated is someone and something that she could be part of. So um, Richard was patient and invited her to come to some church events. Um, And the compromise was she would go if he promised to come to some parties with her. And so they kind of made this work in their marriage, in their first year of marriage. Because um, remember, Sabina wanted, wanted a life of pleasure and luxury. And so anyways, at one party, um, they went together. And by about, I don't know, they were there for a couple of hours. And Sabina was done. She was like, Richard, I am ready to go home. And he insisted. He said, it would be rude if we leave now. We must stay longer. And as it read, I don't know what happened, but it felt like every hour she would come to him and be like, Richard, I am ready to go home now. And he's like, no, you have to stay. And forced her, I think they stayed till like two or three in the morning. And she was like, I am done with this. The drinking, the obscene jokes, this lifestyle is folly. She was had had her fill and was finished with this. And literally on the way home, um, she just felt, yeah, she felt dirty by the pleasures of it all. So on the way home, she said to Richard, that's it, I'll be a Christian. I want to get baptized immediately. 
And Richard said to her, Sabina, you've waited this long. You can wait till tomorrow morning. (laughs) Which is great to see how the Lord had been working in her mind and working in her heart, working in her experiential life. So she was, at this point, had overcome a lot of barriers herself to become a Christian, and she was thrilled with this. So she went and told her best friend, and her best friend had the exact same reaction that she had to Richard's conversion, and she lost her best friend, severed relationship, and she said it was the first, it was, she said it was only the first lesson of now being a Christian and realizing actually what it meant to lose things for Christ. So she lost her best friend. So now they are a changed couple, um, right? Richard has become a Christian. He's become a pastor. He's starting to work um, and preaching and evangelizing. Well, Sabina, she also has had a radical, a radical heart change. She, her family, I'm going to read a little bit from her story. She wrote a book called The Pastor's Wife. This is her perspective on the years. So Richard's book, um, he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ, but I found this book in God's Underground that he wrote. It goes through a lot of the same um, events, but in more like conversational detail, like with some of the prisoners, and it's just a little bit more of a, a novel in a sense. But Sabina wrote this book, The Pastor's Wife, and it chronicles her experience of the same events. And so she writes a little bit about her family's story. So her family, she's from a Jewish family, and um, her family was taken by the Nazis and were killed, all of them, her parents, her siblings, her aunts, her uncles, her cousins, and she survived. Um, she, I don't know how she wasn't taken, but she wasn't. And so this is part of her, her bitterness and her hatred, um, her selfishness, where she wants just self-preservation. I want pleasure. This is part of fed into some of that, that perspective. So now she becomes a Christian. And um, Richard writes in his book, actually, I keep forgetting who writes what parts of the story, that he had, had met a German soldier. The German soldier um, had come to his house. He was a very harsh man. He was very proud of the fact that he had killed Jews with his own hands. He was boasting about this. This is after the war. Um, but Richard invited him in, a Jewish man inviting this German soldier into his home, um, was talking to him about Christ, was, was sharing his home with him, gave him a place to stay. And as he was um, talking to him, this is what, this is what Richard does. Uh, he says, it's late at night, and he talks to, to this man. He says, if you look through that curtain, you can see someone is asleep in the next room. It's my wife, Sabina. Her parents, her sister, her 12-year-old brother have been killed with the rest of the family. You told me that you had killed hundreds of, of Jews near Golta, and that is where they were taken. Looking into his eyes, I added, you yourself don't know who you have shot, so we can assume that you are the murderer of her family. He jumped up, his eyes blazing, looking as if he were about to strangle me. And I held up my hand and I said, now let's try an experiment. I shall wake my wife. And I will tell her who you are, what you have done. And I can tell you what will happen. My wife will not speak one word of reproach. She'll embrace you as if you were her brother. She'll bring you supper, the best things she has in the house. Now, if Sabina, who is a sinner like all of us, can forgive and love like this, 
Imagine how Jesus, who is perfect love, can forgive and love even you. Only return to him and everything you have done will be forgiven. So he does. Uh, He wakes up Sabina, doesn't give her a warning, hey, this is the experiment, just says exactly what he said, this man we think killed your family. And in her sleepy state, in her pajamas, walks over to him, embraces him, and says, let me go make some food for you. So this man becomes a Christian because of her incredible testimony of forgiveness and love to likely the murderer of her family. And um, Richard writes later, she forgave him, and he has become one of our closest friends. There are only two men my wife kisses, her husband and the man who murdered her family. Okay, so this is that transformation. So this is Sabina as an early Christian. The Lord has renovated her heart. And so this is how she approaches life now with this forgiveness, with this love for others. She has a a growing family. Um, They have one son, Mihai. And then I'll tell you a little bit more about some of their some more of their family. But in 1944, like I said, Hitler's Germany uh, begins to crumble. Uh, The German troops are are leaving. Uh, Some of them stayed behind. They got left behind. I don't know. They're there. And she writes, through the war, we had worked to help victims of the Nazis, Jews in concentration camps, children left parentless, Romanian Protestants, Jews, gypsies. Didn't matter. If you needed help, they helped you. But now a new minority had been created, The hunter, the Nazi Germans, became the hunted. German troops left behind in the retreat had to fend for themselves and many died. We were utterly opposed to the Nazis. They had devastated whole countries, leaving cities in ruins. Our friends and relatives had been thrown into their furnaces. But now they were defeated and offered no danger. Most of the soldiers who remained were like ourselves, simply victims of war. They were starving and terrified, and we could not refuse to help them. So in this house, um, they had a shed in the back, and they actually housed a bunch of German uh, soldiers in there, in the storage room. And this was very, it was illegal. They would be killed if they got caught doing this, which is interesting because a few years earlier, when they hid the Jews there, they would have been killed for doing that too. It's like they didn't know who the enemy was. So they would house uh, German soldiers in that storage room. And then Richard, with his um, evangelistic passion for the Russians, would bring the Russians into their house and would feed them tea and would have conversations about the gospel. And a neighbor came and just chastised them and said, you, basically, you are crazy. There is a huge risk that these two armies are going to meet in your kitchen. The Russians and the Germans, they are at war. They're going to meet in your kitchen. And Sabina just matter-of-factly writes, we took care not to let that happen. <laughs> so they are friends to both sides. Not because they're friends to any side, because they're, they're friends of people. They wanted people to know the love of God. So risky love. Risky, risky love. And they did it. They counted the cost, and they just took care not to let it interfere with the mission. Uh, they never had less than a dozen people in their home on Sundays. It's a very small home. I don't think they, the whole home, I think it was like a piece of it. They always had people in to talk about Christ. Um, when, the, when the Germans left and the Russians, remember I talked about those Russian liberators? Sabina said, one thing everyone knew, the Nazi terror was at last over. 
People hoped that the Russians would calm down and soon go their way in peace, the, the Russian liberators. Few guessed that a new, more lasting tyranny had begun. Tyranny had begun. Certainly, I did not know that we had just set out on a road that led to prison and would be marked by the graves of friends. So you remember that Congress meeting I told you about when Richard stood up? Okay, there's a, there's a pre-story to what happened there. This is uh, what Sabina writes. This is her, her perspective. Priests and pastors replied, remember, replied with their affirmation of, of Stalin's vision here. One after another, they said how happy they were about this appreciation of religion. Everyone was glad, and all their gladness was broadcast to the world over the radio, direct from the hall. It was absurd and horrible. Communism was dedicated to the destruction of religion. It had shown its true face already in Russia. They spoke out of fear, the, the religious um, affiliates at this, spoke out of fear affirming the party. They spoke out of fear for their families, their jobs, their salaries. They could have at least kept silent instead of filling the air with flattery and lies. It was as if they had spat on Christ's face. And I could feel that Richard was boiling. So I told him what was already in his heart. Will you not wash this shame from the face of Christ? Richard knew what would happen. If I speak, you will lose a husband. At once I replied, it was not my courage, but it was given to me for the moment. I don't need a coward for a husband. So she was part of prodding him and giving him the, what was already in his heart, the, the, the permission. You can do this. You should do this. You ought to do this. So he spoke because of her encouragement. And they went home and everyone had heard this on the radio, what had happened. And they had some family and friends at the house and they were like, oh, I can't believe you made it home. I thought you'd be arrested. And, or when will you be arrested? Because they knew it was coming, right? And Richard said, I have a powerful savior. He'll do what's best for me. This is just how they approached life, it seems. Very matter-of-factly, just do the next right thing, as Elizabeth Elliot would say. So Sabina was very... Um, willing to live, like I said, a, a risky life. Um, it's true what she said, it wasn't my courage, but given to me for the moment. She, as she writes very candidly, she writes of these courageous things she did, these really courageous moments. But she was also very honest about, I was afraid. I was scared. I was sad. I was heartbroken. She has real emotion. She really was a normal woman going through this very unnormal circumstance in life, but she did manage to have the right amount of courage in the right moment that she needed it, which I think is a gift of God. So she did. She did some risky traveling. Richard, in those three years, remember, he was always under surveillance, so he couldn't do any um, real traveling work for the church. So Sabina was the one who did it, and she would take a ton of money, and she would go um, to relieve um, some Christians who were struggling with famine and she would encourage them and she would preach and all of these things. Um, her family um, also, she didn't protect them from the risky business of being a Christian in a communist country. Her son, Mihai, when he was five years old, became a Christian, uh, not a Christian, but a Christian missionary. So the Russians, um, it was illegal to, to hand out these gospel tracts, but Mihai, the was able to do this safely because the Russians loved the children. The soldiers were starved for, for children. They probably had children at home and they missed them. And so they would always give candy to the kids and then the kids would give them gospels in exchange. And so 
um, something that was very dangerous for adults became very safe for children. And so she willingly put her son in these situations and let Mihai do this. Um, she had adopted five, she and uh, Richard adopted five Jewish children, took them in as their own. Um, but as, I don't know, as times went on, um, it became very difficult for them. They were very concerned that they would have been captured and deported, and there were not good reports what were happening after deportion or being deported. And so there was an opportunity to send them to Israel. And so they did that. They bought passage for their five children and put them on a boat and sent them to Israel uh, as refugees. And the ship got lost at sea. And all five of their children, ah, it's so sad, they died. And this is what she wrote. She says, the pain was terrible. We loved them as our own. When we finally accepted the truth that they were lost, I didn't want to see or speak to anyone. All my beliefs in the resurrection and everlasting life were put to a very hard test. She's very honest about living a life of faithful Christianity and enduring hard things is not easy. It comes at an emotional cost, but I just love that she didn't, she grieved terribly for her children, but she didn't like well up in a ball and say, it's too hard, God, I'm out. I don't want this life you've given me. She just didn't want these circumstances, I'm sure, but grieved and continued. So she, um, for three years, um, no, yeah, for three years while Richard was being surveyed um, by the secret police, worked right alongside with him, um, and even in the midst of this tragedy, continued her work with the, with the underground church and supporting Richard. And then he was arrested and Richard literally vanished from her life. He was walking to church and never came home. Just gone. She knew he would be arrested. So the fact that he never came home, she put two and two together and said, well, that must have been the day he was arrested. But it was never confirmed. The police denied having him in prison. He was just gone. Um, but they also said that you are now a wife of a political prisoner. So she's like, well... You are either, one of those is a lie. They're not both true. But as the wife of a political prisoner, you can't get a ration card. And you can't um, work without a ration card. So their life became incredibly desperate. They had no food. Um, they had no social services in a sense. Um, but she kept doing the work. She disguised herself as a nurse to go and not disguise, but like put on that facade, went to do nursing work, and that became her avenue for, for missions work, um, which is amazing. So a year after Richard was arrested, she was arrested. Her crime on the paper says fanatical against the efforts of communism. Her crime in reality, praying for those in prison. That's what she was arrested for. So she um, was taken to prison. Uh, she was transferred three times. She, like her husband, had many opportunities to share the gospel. She was in one, um, she was in Jalava, which was the most feared prison in Romania, and she got to know the names of every uh, woman prisoner there and would pray for them and would talk to them about Christ. Um, and she was offered a chance to be an informer which she refused because she didn't want to be like Judas. She didn't want to inform on her fellow Christians. And her life became very miserable because she, was, she denied such a good opportunity of the communist kindness to her. 
So she had a very hard time. She was sent to labor camp and worked on uh, the canal for about three years. And they would have to shovel rocks into wheelbarrows. And talking was strictly forbidden. So she would whisper Bible verses to the men who pushed the wheelbarrows as she would put the rocks in the wheelbarrow. She was relentless to share the gospel and was creative to know how can I do this. Well, if I can't talk, I'll whisper. She paid for it, but she wanted to do it for the Lord. Okay, her son. What happened to Mihai? He was abandoned by father and mother, not on purpose, but he was. The underground church took care of him, sort of. Um, he was orphaned, and he was, um, had no real guidance, but, but they did. They took him in, different families at different times, would take him in, would feed for him, would care, him, care for him. And he struggled um, with knowing how, how can we love this God who let this happen to my mom and my dad and me. I've been very, very sorely left alone. So he um, had an opportunity to visit his mom once when she was in prison. And this is what she said. So they had to be, I can't remember how far, like far away. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like 300 meters isn't that far, but that's probably far when you haven't seen your son for two years and you're not allowed to be any closer to him. So I think they were far. They, they weren't allowed to talk about anything specific. And she said that she was so overwhelmed after two years of not seeing her son and knowing what had happened to him that she just, um, that the, 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 the time got swallowed up with emotion, she said. I think they just probably ended up looking at each other. They were allowed 15 minutes. She said, I remember that I called, oh yeah, here, she says, our emotions wiped out the time. We barely spoke. Not that it was possible to say anything intimate anyway. I remember that I called out across the space that separated us. Mihai, believe in Jesus with all your heart. These are the first words that she has said to him in two years. I gave him the best counsel that I could, knowing from my experience in prison among so many people, old and young, that only Christ can give the hope that lights the darkest place. And Mihai reflects when he, he's written a couple of things. He reflects that when he was... Um, yeah, when he was older, he looks back when he reflects on his life and he says, that was the pivotal moment when I was able to dedicate myself to the work of Christ. Because I knew that if my mom in prison still loved Jesus, then I could love Jesus outside of prison no matter what happened. So yeah, the best counsel that you can give your kid is to trust in Jesus no matter what the circumstances are. So the Spirit used that to work, work in his heart and seal him for his own. She had some very difficult times in prison. She, um, I feel like taking the rocks, building the canal and, and moving the rocks in the wheelbarrows sounds like the most physically difficult work. It may have been, but she also, they had to work in a pigsty. They were at the state pig farm. And she describes that as actually being harder. Um, I don't know if it was physically harder, but I think it was just totally harder. Like all the pieces of that experience were hard. She only did it for a couple um, weeks, but this is what she wrote about some of her like deepest despair and misery in prison. She said, perhaps in this psychological condition such as this is, I should not have survived for long. But happily, it did not last for many weeks, which means it did last for many weeks, which is very hard, but it didn't last forever. 
She says, I am convinced that the Lord heard my prayers and took me out according to his plan. I only had to learn a very deep lesson, to drink the cup to its bitterest dregs. And now I am thankful that I passed through this hard school, which teaches you the highest love, love towards God, even when he gives nothing but suffering. It was in this place of her deepest suffering that she learned about the deepest love of God that she had never known when she wasn't suffering, which sounds like an absolute paradox. It sounds like it shouldn't be that way. And yet, many times when you read stories of martyrs, it is in their deepest place of suffering that they know Christ the most. So her, she was a very bold lady. Um, she would often um, encourage her interrogators and torturers um, to be more like Christ, which is crazy. She would confront them. And she said, um, yeah, one of them was interrogating her right before her release. And she said, I see that you are powerful and that you probably have papers and documents there about me um, that can decide my fate. But God keeps records too. And neither you nor I would have life without him. So whether he keeps me here or he sets me free, I'll accept what's best for me. And the major banged both his fists on the desk as if there was something that he could hurt. Ungrateful, Mrs. Wormbrand. Ungrateful. I'm sorry to see that you failed to learn your lesson and I shall make a report to that effect. And he raged for a few minutes more. But God has a record. She was convinced of that and she was dependent on that. And that's where her hope was, was in God's record, not in his record, their record, the interrogator's record. So shortly after that, she was released and um, she resumed her work with the underground, um, encouraging people. It was very interesting. So the secret police had this whole um, system that was set up to, to find people who would inform on the secret police so they could find out where they were meeting, when they were meeting, who was meeting, who were they talking to, and they wanted to know everything about the secret church so they could, in the right timing, for the right reasons, come and collapse it, arrest key figures. Um, so what the secret church, or the secret church, yeah, the underground church, what they ended up doing was they created their own spy network. And Sabina was, was somewhat in charge of this, and she would recruit people to implant them in the secret um, police, plant them in administration so that she could learn some of their secrets. Very, very risky. Um, and the best way to go about um, informing on the Communist Party and infiltrating them was with the youth. And so she would be very strategic about picking some Christian youth and planting them there. And this, some of the, the parents would come, the mothers in particular, would come and object to her. This is too risky. And this is what her response was. I know how they feel, the mothers who come here. If the communists were to prove to me right now that Richard had died in prison, I wouldn't be simply sad, which means I would be sad, but sad plus. Sad plus what? I'd be proud too. This spirit of spreading day by day, if one can be proud of a son who dies for his country, how much more could one be proud of a son who was a martyr for Christ? So this is her, this is her perspective. There's a, a deep sense of, of sorrow and of lament that, that filled the work that they did and the cost that it was. But there was this awareness of, of Christ's work 
And sacrificing our life for Christ is better than sacrificing ourselves for country or for family. And so she had this, this very clear priority, this very clear vision to live a life for Christ. Um, so during these, these years when, when um, Richard wasn't around, um, the communists were very oppressive to her. They would often come and interrogate her at home. They would have all kinds of stories about um, how he died, about what his funeral was like. Uh, she wouldn't believe them. But then they would come and have other stories about, about how he was faring and how torturous he was. And, and then they would say, well, this time he actually did die. And they would tell the story of his death. Um, they would come and they would um, encourage her to divorce him. This was a big tactic that they used because if the wife could divorce, then the, the son would be orphaned and they could take the son to the state. Um, so she, she wouldn't. Um, but the pressure to divorce Richard was immense. She went through a lot of temptation. Um, she was very lonely and she was very... Um, sorry, 11.03, should we want to know the time? <laughs> Uh, she, was, she was very lonely and she missed, she missed the company of her husband. And so she was sorely tempted to have an affair during this time. And she writes about that and how um, a, a good pastor noticed and confronted her, how she was able to repent before um, she had just entertained ideas, but she was able to repent of that and, and not cheat on her husband and not abandon him and stay faithful to him. She had a very honest struggle with loneliness. And yet she had a deep conviction and wonderful people around her that were committed to Christ, to staying faithful, even though there's every pressure to do everything that would dishonor Christ. So Richard is released and they spend about three years together and then he's rearrested. But this time he's rearrested in the home. And so Sabina is there and I just want to read this one little, little piece and then close on her story so that we can discuss it a little bit. But she said, when they came, um, we knelt together in prayer with the secret police standing around us. And then we sang the hymn, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. A hand fell on Richard. We've got to get going. It's nearly 5 a.m. And I went down after them, down the staircase, Richard turned his head to say, give all my love to Mihai and to the pastor who denounced me. And they pushed him into the van. When I started up, I began to cry out, Richard, Richard. I ran after the van, calling out and weeping along the icy street. And then it vanished around a corner. I had to stop, breathless, confused. Back at the attic, the door stood open. Weeping, I fell on the floor. I cried out, Lord, I give my husband into your hands. I can do nothing, but you can pass through locked doors. You can put angels around him. You can bring him back. I sat in the darkness, praying until the new day arrived. And then I began to remember what I still had to do. This is incredible. This is her, her initial cry when her husband gets rearrested and she knows the difficulty that lays ahead for her. Lord, I give my husband into your hands. He's yours anyways. He's not mine. And then she remembered what she needed to do. She also had a responsibility in the church and a responsibility to her neighbors. And she kept on 
keeping on in faithfulness to Christ. It's a remarkable story. So do you remember um, last week, Sarah read a whole bunch of quotes to us, and one of the quotes was from Sabina Wormbrand, and her uh, quote, I have it here, doing the work of God is dangerous. Not doing it is more dangerous. So this is where that quote comes from, a bigger section of her book. She said, we had great joys. We also had our anxieties. And whenever I'm away from Richard, I fear. This is her writing once they've already moved to America. Whenever I'm away, I fear. But if it is dangerous to do God's work, how much more dangerous is it to leave it undone? No man can stop a hurricane. Neither can I stop Richard from exposing more and more of the cruelties and subtle infiltrations of communism, so rousing the fury of communist leaders May the angels of God protect him. So this is the last I have to say about her. She was not afraid of doing God's dangerous work, even though she was afraid. But she wasn't afraid. But she was. She lived in that tension. But the thing that trumped, the thing that, that rose, and she rose to the occasion, was, was her love for the Lord, just like her husband. And they ended up working together, Uh, For the rest of their lives, they died one year apart and they worked together uh, to bring awareness and to travel to encourage uh, persecuted Christians and bring relief to the families of those um, who have been separated with one person being in prison and the rest of the family left to starve. So this this is her work. This is her life. It's incredible what the Lord has done, hey? 